Thank you. Let's welcome everybody online at Cafe Church in our other Kingsgate centers. Well, I trust you're enjoying this series. I've been away on a study break and listen back to Jeff and Andrew's messages. Weren't they fantastic? Why don't we just thank God for the amazing input that we get uh, from the, these great speakers. So um, we've been looking at this wonderful subject of well-being and looking at this whole idea that we have different interrelated tanks and we have this concept of a, a life dashboard. And so I trust as we've been looking at various areas of uh, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, vocational uh, well-being, that you've begun to take next steps in your journey. You know that this season isn't um, all done and dusted. This is us setting ourselves on a new course to see increased well-being, not just now, but for the rest of our lives. Amen. And so today we come to, last but not least, the whole area of our finances. And I'm sure we all agree that this is an important area to cover. When I first started thinking about this series and was beginning to write the book, I actually wasn't going to do a section on finances. And then I thought, hold on a minute, we're missing out a key area of well-being. Uh, right now, the not-so-good news is that as a nation... We have a lot of financial stress. Apparently, recent survey said that 77% of the UK are stressed about their finances. 17% are very stressed. And uh, you don't need me to tell you that financial pressure can have an impact on our sleep, on our mental and emotional well-being, and of course on relationships and marriages as well. So it's not that we're looking at just finances for finance sake. There's something about money, the love of money or the fear of lack of it, that can tug on us and can affect us deeply and impact other areas of our lives. So let's imagine a different scenario. Wouldn't it be amazing if as a whole church, every single Kingsgate member went from any sense of financial stress to financial peace and well-being? How about that? You know, imagine a scenario when rather than, you know, just always feel like you're running out, you have money at the end of every month. <laughs> a sense of margin. A sense of being able not only to provide for your needs and your family, but you've got some extra to enjoy life. That you can give faithfully to the work of the Lord and generously to those uh, in need. You go to bed at peace, not worried or stressed about your finances. Sound possible? Well, I believe with our God, who has a plan for our well-being, we can turn that dream, that scenario, into reality. And so my, my goal, and I feel really excited about this message, I'm believing that wherever you're at on your financial dial, whether you're right in the red zone, whether you're heading there, or whether, you know, you're doing quite well. How many know all of us can see an increase in financial well-being? That's what I'm believing for. Uh, both as we look at it today, many of you going through the devotionals and uh, unpack it in life groups. And I believe it's important we do that because... One of the problems that compounds the problem is that we're often very reluctant in our culture to talk about money. We'll talk about diet and health and other things. And so almost like the issues go buried. But can I say, let's get out where we're at in the light. God is our Father. He's good for us. Amen. And let's just allow the Spirit of God to a deep work of liberating us and getting a fresh perspective on this whole area. So a couple of foundational principles. First is that the word we're using for well-being, the biblical word shalom means, can we say this together, well-being 
in every area of life. And I haven't got time to go back, but if you look at the use of the word shalom, it doesn't just mean inner peace, it means a sense of well-being in every area of life, including a sense of material or financial provision. That was in the Hebrew worldview. So when we talk about well-being, it's not well-being plus finance, it's well-being. It includes every area of our lives. The second foundation is the very nature of who our God is. You know that God is first our Father. Yeah? And even good human fathers and mothers have, have a a capacity and an inbuilt desire to provide for their children. This, this is huge. Uh, I remember as a young Christian, without going into lots of detail, but if, if we've got two ditches that we could fall into financially, one is, if you like, a covetous materialistic ditch, and the other is like a fear poverty ditch, uh, partly because of just things in my background. I'd probably more be veering on the poverty mindset. I wasn't particularly worried about money. And then I remember studying the names of the Lord in the Lord's Prayer, as I was learning to pray the Lord's Prayer. And I came across one of the covenant names of the Lord is uh, the name uh, Jehovah Jireh or Jehovah Yireh. And I remember studying the root of that word, and it's translated in our English translations as the Lord will provide, but actually at root, the whole word there, the Hebrew word there means to see beforehand. To see beforehand. You see, we've got an all-knowing, loving Father who sees your need before you even have a need and has got a plan to fix it. Amen? And I remember being so liberated by that that I didn't have to worry by just what I saw in front of me because there's a God who sees beforehand. And then to take it to our English word, provide, provideo, God sees our need beforehand and he's fixing a way to supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So that's foundation. Well-being is well-being in every area of life and we have a God who is a provider. And if we look at Elijah's story, and we, we kind of range a bit wider than his meltdown in 1 Kings 19, we'll actually see that the whole of Elijah's story is set in the context of a huge economic crisis. Can I say far worse than Brexit, not Brexit, pre-Brexit uncertainty? They were in a financial drought Can I say a drought in an agrarian subsistence economy is not just bad and worrying, it's a near disaster. And yet against this most bleak of backdrops, God is not limited to what's happening on the earth, amen. God can find a way to provide. And so all through this story, we see this undergirding of God providing. And what I want to look at is I want to look at, if you like, three key characters. First, we'll look at Elijah, the itinerant prophet and how God supplies for him. Then we're going to look at a destitute widow, and then we're going to look at a wealthy farmer called Elisha. And there are three principles that if God is our provider, that doesn't mean we just sit around, we need to respond in heart and action to position ourselves so that we can see an increase of financial well-being. First principle is this, and this is foundational. Choose contentment. Say contentment. Choose contentment in every season. Now, I'm sure you're aware that contentment or a lack of it has a massive impact on how we view our finances and our lives. You see, the whole advertising world, as we heard a few weeks ago from Roger Bretherton, is based on the fact that they want to try and convince you that you need more than you've got. 
Isn't that right? That, that they, they basically try and fuel your kind of lack of contentment so that you will purchase more. And even if you are blessed and you're not content, it's going to mess with your sense of financial peace. And as we'll see in a, in a short while, lack of contentment can cause us to overspend, which gets us in trouble. We don't have margin and therefore we have a lack of peace. So let's look at this whole area of um, contentment. I don't know what season you're in right now, but Elijah was in this season of huge financial pressure or economic drought because he had actually prophesied it in, in, in the word of the Lord. But look at how God, who's not limited by that, actually provides for his servant. Firstly, he instructs Elijah to go to the Kerith Ravine where, listen to this, ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I mean, talk about being supernaturally provided for in a time of recession. Isn't that incredible? God literally, this is not a made-up story. This happened, amen? Our God who owns everything has a way of getting stuff to his prophet even in uh, a real crisis time. And there's no... There's no sign there that Elijah gets frustrated or bored. He's not so looking over at Obadiah, as we heard last week, you know, saying, you know, Obadiah's probably got a lot more dosh than Elijah. He's not sort of wishing he was Obadiah or, you know, wishing he was riding around the king's chariot. Presumably Elijah's sitting there just grateful that he's got bread and meat and, and drink because God is taking care, not of his luxuries in this case, but of his bare necessities. I won't go there. His basic necessities. And by the way, that Paul later on talks about how we need to be content. And he talks about being content with food and clothing. Can I add, and Paul, given that we live in Northern Europe, can we add in shelter too, please? But the point being, you see, is that Elijah's content in this case with God just providing him with the basics. Can I say much of the world today um, would love to just to be enjoying the basics? of food, of clothing, and shelter. Amen? And so it's important where we set, if you like, our basic contentment bar. And so we've got him there provided by ravens. Then we'll see in a minute God sends him to a, a widow to provide for him. And then, of course, the passage we've been focusing on in 1 Kings 19, he's in a desert. It's after the drought, but Elijah literally has nothing. He is in a desert. And so God does something else wonderful. He sends him an angel to cook him some fresh bread and give him some water. Do you see how good our God is? Isn't he so kind and so good? Yeah, amazing. This is the character of God. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I've shared before, but when Karen and I first moved to Peterborough, we weren't in quite as dire a state as um, Elijah, but it was pretty desperate. We'd moved in the will of God. So like Elijah, we were serving God in the will of God. We weren't out of the will of God, but it was tough. Yet we moved at the height of a property boom. We'd got what was called a low-start mortgage. We got badly advised. Basically, a low-start mortgage means that it starts low and it quickly goes high. We were on one modest salary. And I'm not exaggerating. We literally had to, we were tithing, we were putting God first, and we had to pray every month for about 18 months for extra to come in. 
Now, we didn't have ravens knocking on our window, <laughs> but we did have checks and cash come through, literally for a period of about, I don't know whether it was angels or just generous people. The church was only 15 at the time. Can I tell you, God is not limited by anything. He can get the supply to you because he's a good, good father. <laughs> and that builds a kind of trust when you know that, that, that God does things this way. And we had to learn to be content. Would we have liked a house that wasn't falling <laughs> down? Not quite, but you know, mold or everywhere. Would we have liked less pressure? Absolutely we would have done. But we had to learn to be content in those early years and, you know, and make sure that you know, we made commitment not to, not to get into debt apart from that mortgage. Why? Because we had to learn to be content knowing that God was our provider in that season. That was the season. But how do you know that contentment doesn't just matter when you're in real hardship? It matters when you've got a little bit more freedom. Because if we're not careful, we can just fuel spending by thinking what we actually need is just what we want. And it's not a problem having what you want, but it is if you can't afford it. And I think contentment's a heart attitude. Um, I was recently tested on this. Uh, I was going away... Um, preaching to a leaders' conference. Um, it was about a four-hour drive in the rain, turned up quite late. There wasn't any food there. The, the, the hotel had shut down all the food. I said, that doesn't matter. That's fine. Got to my room, and it was like an icebox. As I turned the radiator on, nothing happened. So I went down to the receptionist and um, said, uh, it doesn't seem like my radiator's working. He said, oh, don't worry, it's on a timer. <laughs> Before I could react by saying, do you think the timer could be adjusted to the time right now? He said, don't worry, the manager's sorted it. It's about to come on. Give it 10 minutes and be on. Okay. So go to bed, go to sleep, wake up pretty early, about 10 to 5. Um, the room's an icebox. I turn the radiator on. Guess what? It's on a timer. <laughs> right now, at this moment, I'm about to lose it. Now, bear in mind, I'm about to speak to a bunch of leaders on well-being. I'm going to speak to you on contentment. I'm about to get a really bad attitude. And there were other things about the room. The flush wasn't working. Anyway, I won't, I won't kind of... Can I have a bit of sympathy, please? <laughs> but as I was tempted to get a really bad attitude, I just almost sensed the Lord smiling. Okay, so contentment, is it? So I got, so I got in bed, pulled the bed clothes up, put my jumper on and my coat on got my well-being book, started doing my devotions, and made a choice. Lord, I choose contentment. I went into that day happy rather than sad, glad rather than annoyed. We had a wonderful time because I chose contentment. <laughs> Paul puts it this way. I have learned, Satan, if the Apostle Paul had to learn this, so do you and I, okay? He doesn't have arrived. So I've learned to be content what? Whatever the circumstances, contentment is not about circumstance. By the way, that thing about financial stress and whatever, that, that you'd think it was just people on a low income. Actually, financial stress and worry applies across all income brackets. So I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret, oh, it's a wonderful secret, of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then this is a verse that we often quote out of context. 
This is not a sort of, I can be Superman quote. This is in the context of this. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can be what? Content, because I know that God is with me and God is for me. Amen. Growing in contentment not only honors God and gives us peace. Can I say growing in contentment is critical if you and I are to rein our spending in and make sure if this is, this is the level of our income and not go above it, but actually get some margin. Say margin. Margin is an amazing thing. But if we don't have the heart attitude of contentment, we're more likely to succumb to overspending, which leads to lack of margin, which leads to financial stress. And we don't want that, do we, in Jesus' name? And so some of us, even just hearing this message and going through this week, it may be just need to settle something. I'm content because God is with me. And therefore, we can start attending to our spending. Um, on, on the Kingsgate web, website, in the, there's a well-being section and a finance thing. There's some great resources, books, and more, more detail than I can give now that, that will sort of help you in this whole area. Can I just say some simple things? Don't, don't be succumbed to what I call impulse spending. It's gone very quiet all of a sudden. Don't just, I see it, I buy it, particularly if it's an expensive purchase. Step back, go away, pray about it. Check not just with the law, but with Mr. Budget. Amen. And, and be free to walk away. Your happiness and contentment is not based on whether you have that thing, I would suggest. And can I say and that implies at Christmas time too? Don't overspend in, in, uh, at Christmas time and still be paying for it at Easter 2021. <laughs> Seriously. Rain back on the spending. And then most importantly, you know, and this is not a political comment, one party or the other, because they're all doing it, but let's not follow our politicians and think that we can finance our lifestyle by more and more borrowing. And if you're in debt get help. We've got all kinds of ways. We'd love to help you out to get. I know the pain. I understand pastorally the pain of that. Step back. Get out of debt. Get free. Let contentment be your modus operandi. Amen. So choose contentment in every season. Second principle is this. Give God the first and the best. Give God the first and the best. Now, but before you say, hold on a minute, I've just kind of getting some margin here. Can I say that God wants something for you more than he wants something from you. Hold that thought. God wants something for you more than he wants something for, uh, from you. Giving God the first and the best obviously honors him and it supplies the need of people and ministries, but giving to God first and best is good for you and it's good for me. Let me explain. Let me give you uh, a, a second incident in the life of Elijah. And this is a, this is a stunning one. So Q, we've had Elijah, Q number two character, a destitute widow. So let's go back to the Elijah story. The droughts begin to worsen. The brook at Kerith has dried up. And so God instructs Elijah to go and get food from a destitute widow who's about to prepare her last meal for herself and her son before, before getting ready to die. Now, I don't know about you. If I've been Elijah, say, God, have you got this wrong? You must have some wealthy benefactor somewhere. 
Why are you choosing to send me to a, a destitute widow? I'll tell you why. Because God loves widows and orphans and all in distress. And God wants to involve this woman and help her get blessed. But first, she has to obey this, what at first may seem cruel, but actually is incredibly kind and liberating command. Elijah says to her when he realizes where she's at, he's obviously operating as a prophet by the Spirit of God. He says, don't be afraid. Can I say that's a word to a lot of us out here at this time? Don't be afraid. First, say first. First, now this could be really misunderstood. First, make a small loaf of bread for me, Elijah says. Say, Elijah, what ego trip are you on, man? This is not Elijah being selfish. This is Elijah operating as a prophet by the Spirit of God. God could have provided for Elijah by continuing to supply supernaturally, send an angel, send a wealthy benefactor. God is not concerned about supplying Elijah's need. He's concerned about rescuing this destitute woman who's about to die. And so he says to her, first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Notice the order, first and then. For here was the promised. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And listen to this. And it happened. Say it happened. It happened. Just as the Lord had promised, there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. And here we come face to face. God's economics are different to ours. And so this principle of giving first isn't just an isolated example. It's a very kind of compelling, striking example. But the issue of putting God first actually runs right the way through the Bible. You could go right back to you know, Cain and Abel, where um, Abel honors God by giving to God first. Here's a great little a couple of verses from Proverbs. Can we say this together? Read this together. Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 from the Message Translation. 1, 2, 3. Honor God with everything you own. Give him the first and the best. Your barns will burst, your wines will brim over. Your vats, your vats will, wine vats will brim over. The point is this. If we want to honor God, we have to put him first. Can I say why? Not first because we know God will bless us, because we know that God has already blessed us, because he's given us his son, who is God's first and his best. And so everything we do starts with an attitude of gratitude. We want to honor you. But then the promise is that as we honor God and put him first, we begin to step into, listen to this, into God's supernatural economy. Now, they were in drought. The widow steps in. She gives first in effect, to, to God and his servant, and then steps into God's supernatural reply. You, see, uh, you see, see, what we can tend to say, oh, it's tight. And I'm not minimizing the concern. I know that for pressure on businesses, and I'm not saying necessarily you're doing this, but don't do this. Don't think, okay, things are tight, therefore we'll back off. I want to tell you, I would far rather entrust 
the 90% of my finances under God's supernatural supply than try and make it in any situation, recession or not, <laughs> Brexit or not, uncertainty or certainty, than, than try and make it 100% with just me and my resources. Anyone else? And many of us have experienced that for, for, for many years. And so the question is, you know, in her case, she gave sacrificially. So are there any guidelines as to how we're to honor God with, with the first and the best? Well, you know, linked to that, of course, is the principle of tithing, which goes right back, predates the law to Abraham. When this guy Melchizedek comes to him, Abraham gives, if you like, off the top, um, a tithe to uh, to Melchizedek. And if you look into Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is a type of Melchizedek. So when you and I tithe, whether you give in, into an offering, whether you give online, guess what? Ultimately, we are tithing to Jesus, who is the Lord our provider. Amen? I'm going to say tithing is a great place to start. Um, I, I first about heard about the tithing, a principle of tithing when I was at university. I was a student and literally just, I thought, well, it's in the Word, I'll do it. And I, I prospered as a student. How good is that? And then as Karen and I went into our early married life, we started tithing. Then we felt the Lord telling us to start gross tithing. And I can honestly say from that moment on to this day, we just entered into God's supernatural supply. In our case, there was an immediate sort of dramatic answer to prayer. We were praying for a car. Some of you heard this story before, but it's a good one. We were praying for a car, and um, this guy came up to us and said, you know, I've got this, didn't know, you know, I, he didn't know we were looking for a car. <laughs> he just said, I believe God, God wants you to have a car. Um, it, it's worth 1,500 pounds. Now, 30 years ago, that, that, was, that was reasonable. It's a red Ford Escort. I want you to give me 100 pounds, just say you've bought it. And so that was almost like one of the first instances. We started tithing. We stepped into God's provision. God provided this car. And so we nicknamed that car Barry. I mean, what else would you want to call a red Ford Escort? So we drove Barry round proudly as a sign of just, this, this, this is a sign of God's faithfulness. And without sort of lengthening the story, we, we eventually gave Barry away. And um, God gave us another car, a white Sierra, called Julie. I mean, what else would you call a, a white Sierra? <laughs> and then we gave that away and had a blue Mondeo, which was, we called Gordon. I mean, what, what else would you call a blue Mondeo? For those of you who remember those cars. Anyway, the point being, we gave Barry away to this other young guy in ministry. I heard about a decade later, Barry was still going. He might be out there someday now. <laughs> Barry may still be going. <laughs> Now, if I'm honest, you know, but, but, you know, and sometimes God encourages people when they start tithing in that way. But, but here's, here's the part I want to make. Whether you're seeing obvious, dramatic, or whatever, that's not my point. I look back over 35 years and say just by faithfully tithing, you, 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 you step into God's protection and blessing, and month after month, month after month, you look back, and hundreds of us say we would never want to go back to trying to do it our way on 100%. God has an ability to make the 90% and, the, and us honoring first go far, far further. Amen. So this is the whole thing of giving God the first and the, and the best. And then there's a final thing that I think is actually, as I was praying about this, I feel pretty excited for a number of us here today. It's the, it's the first, so the first is choose contentment in every season. That way we get margin. Give God the first and the best. And then thirdly, steward the extra well. Say extra. 
Cue our third character, a guy called Elisha. For those of you who've been tracking with the story, and particularly the last couple of weeks, you'll have heard that Elisha was a young man who was called to be a companion and a successor to Elijah. He was to join him and to become uh, the, the future prophetic leader. But Elisha, when Elijah calls him, was in a very different economic situation to either Elijah, who's an itinerant prophet having to rely on angels and on ravens, which, let's be honest, for most of us is not the case, or a destitute widow who has to have a miraculous multiplication. Elisha is somebody who actually was, in that context, reasonably well off. We find him... As Elijah calls him, it says he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pen. Now, notice the couple of things here. Firstly, Elisha is working. Say working. (laughs) The Bible is clear that work is good. It goes right back to Genesis and it's the normal way that God provides. Yes, God can provide supernaturally, but don't think that your job isn't ultimately a gift from God, because guess what? Everything, our breath, our talents, our strength, all comes from Him. And so Elisha is somebody who was working, but he was also, commentators generally agree, must have been pretty wealthy. The fact that they have 12 yoke of oxen meant that he comes from a wealthy family. And as I was thinking about this and praying about this, I, I thought, actually... For many of us, you know, let's start with the fact that the fact that we are living in this country, for the vast majority of us, maybe for 99% of us in in Kingsgate, we are vastly wealthy compared to the rest of the world. That is just fact. I could give you stats on that, but that is absolutely true. But let's, let's acknowledge that even in this culture and in this context, some of you are feeling really pressed. I understand that. And hopefully points one and two will help you kind of moving in the right direction. But for many of us, if we take food, clothing, and shelter as the bare necessities, and we steward what we've got well, and we honor, get, honor God, and we really are radical on that, can I suggest that all of, uh, all of us in that context will actually have some kind of extra. I'm not talking about you've got so much money. How many got so much money sitting around you don't know what to do with it? Pray on. <laughs> and so, so, so how does this apply then? We're, we're kind of more like where Elisha is. We have some extra. So this third point is steward the extra well. And here I want to quote from John Wesley, 18th century preacher. This is a fantastic quote that he says this, earn all you can, give all you can, and save all you can. And I just want to unpack those three things before we land. Firstly, earn all you can. Can I say, God is not against us having wealth, he's against wealth having us. Amen? Money is not bad, it's the love of money that can derail us. So I want to say, in your work, in your business, in your investments, in your retirement, wherever you're at, go and earn as much as you can. Do it legally and morally. And don't mess up your physical and emotional well-being in your family by working beyond what God's calling you to do. But go and, go and earn all you can. Amen? Proverbs puts it like this. Diligent hands bring wealth. And I want to pray at the end of this meeting. 
And in all our centers, we're going to do that. Because I, I, I believe that God wants to, if you like, put some supernatural fresh on some jobs and some businesses. And those of you out of work, I want to pray that you, you, you'll get supernaturally supplied jobs as you go looking. I want to pray for investments to prosper. God is the God of all riches and all wealth. And he, he wants to get finances to his people so that they can steward the resources of the earth. Amen. Come on, that's, he's a good, good God. So earn all you can. Secondly, I'm just going to change the audio. Save all you can. Now, if we haven't got our spending under control, saving is going to be almost impossible because it's always going to be on the never, next, month, oh no, next year. Don't know. Somehow we, we've got to get a rain and start saving as a priority. I heard that apparently Gen Z or Z, which is the younger group before the millennials, sort of t uh, many of them being our teens or very, very early 20s, are actually a lot more financially prudent than many of later generations. And they're saving now, some of them, for their retirement in their teens. How many wish we'd done that? But great little scripture here by Proverbs 13:11 says, "Dishonest Monday, Monday, dishonest Monday, dishonest money dwindles away. But whoever gathers money, little by little, makes it grow." So can I say, saving really matters. Many of you know Robert Morris. He's a good friend of Kingsgate. He came to preach here. He's almost like a world leader in the body of Christ on generosity. He's written two books on this subject: "The Blessed Life." which is all about generosity. But this, this year, he brought out a new book called Beyond Blessed. I love the subtitle, God's Perfect Plan to Overcome All Financial Stress. And one of the things he does, having, if you like, preached the generosity message, he says, but of course, if you've not got your finances in order, you've not got a budget, you're not saving, then you can't actually be generous. So, so, you know, in, in more detail I can possibly do now, if you, if you want to check out on the Kingsgate website, I think we've got a link to it. But he does a whole thing on the importance of saving. If you can do nothing else right now, just get something of an emergency fund. So if you have a crisis, it's not panic stations, you've got a bit of financial margin and peace. Amen? And then, of course, for many of us, you know, planning ahead for the, the future and even planning ahead for things you might want. You know, there's not wrong to have things to enjoy. Just make sure you've got it saved up so you don't have to borrow to finance it. And then, of course, if we save, then we can be ready when God says, and I want you to give. And that takes the third thing. So say, earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. That simply means that for many of us, 10% is not the, the stopping point, it's the starting point. It's that we might live a life of generosity and be generous to the Lord's work and to people. Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's something glorious about freeing in our hearts when we're giving to others and we can know, and there's promise after promise all the way through the Bible, that God will resupply us and take care of us when we give generously to his work. Amen? Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. I, I want to tell you, that's how we can steward the extra well. But let me just quickly finish the Elisha story. There are times in the Bible, including here, when God says to people... I want you to give the lot and entrust everything to me. And so Elisha literally gets rid of all his stuff, kills the oxen, goes and follows Elijah. And you say, 
Would that be a dangerous thing to do? Not if it's God calling. Do you know Jesus called his disciples and they did the same? Listen to this promise. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive how much? That was a bit muted. Uh, Somebody's thinking, oh, is he going to ask me? A hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and along with persecutions, and the age to come, eternal life. I believe in the majority of cases, God doesn't call people to leave everything to go full-time in the ministry. But I believe the principle is the same. Everything comes from Him, and even if we don't have to give it all, I believe there are times and seasons, even on a morning like this, when it's good to re-surrender it all and say, ultimately, it all comes from you. Lord, I get rid of worry and fear. You are my provider. Thank you for the lot. I want to be a great steward of all you've given me. And I receive your peace. Amen. So let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you foundationally that you have a plan for our financial well-being. You're a good, good Father. You are the Lord, our provider. And so right now, Lord, where we've been in fear or we've been in stress or we've been mismanaging or we've not been diligent or we've not been honoring you, whatever, Lord, we repent of it and then we receive your peace. And I pray for every single person listening and watching that you'll give us at least one next step. One thing you want us to do in response to your incredible provision over our lives that would help us move the dial. I pray, Lord, for everybody in the red zone. You'll help them step out of that and get back to a place of financial health. For all of us, wherever we're at, Lord, we want to be better stewards of all that you've given us. We believe, Lord, for even... I'm believing you are going to confirm this message with signs following. I thank you for an increase over this house. In Jesus' name, amen.